Hey everybody, it's Miss Universe 1992, Michelle McLean, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Tim Tialdo. Hey everybody, welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you useful interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, lifestyle entrepreneur, pageant host, author, and quite honestly, somebody who just wants to help you become a better person overall. Now, if pageant life is over for you, or it soon could be, and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? Or what's next? This podcast is designed to help make the transition to real life and the school of hard knocks a little bit easier for you to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us today. Let's get started. Ladies, good luck to both of you. The first runner-up is Miss Columbia, Miss Universe, is Miss Namibia, Michelle McLean. Congratulations. That is the legendary Dick Clark announcing Michelle McLean as Miss Universe 1992. She won that title at the age of 19 for the country of Namibia. With over 25 years of experience in media, she is now an internationally recognized model, television personality, master of ceremonies, speaker, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. In 1998, she was recognized by the Miss Universe organization and presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award for her philanthropy work. She hosted the Miss Florida pageant in 2015, judged the Miss Universe pageant in 2015, and also judged the Miss USA pageant in 2016 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She is presently writing a book on the pageant industry, helping women how to cope with the demands of the beauty industry and self-esteem issues. She offers seminars, workshops, and coaching for women in the beauty, modeling, and pageant industries. Her new company, The Business of Beauty, with her partner Jane Babita, coaches women in the transition from being title holders, going into the business arena, to understand the power of personal branding and endorsements for the longevity of their business careers. No doubt a stellar resume and a career full of accomplishments. Michelle McLean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. It's a great honor. Yeah, well, gosh, you have done so much, uh, not only in the pageant industry, but outside of it. But, you know, I, I think it all started for you from what I read. Um, at the age of 13, you began an international mod- modeling career. Talk about kind of how that developed in your life. Right. So um, I was a real tomboy growing up in a country, obviously, you, you, you know, in Namibia, uh, in Southwest Africa. So real sort of rural farm, uh, we didn't live on a farm, but, um, you know, really basic. So I went hunting and fishing with my dad most of my, my uh, teenage years. And then my mom decided, okay, right, we've got to make a lady of you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and she sent me to a finishing uh, class that was being held in Namibia. It was someone from South Africa came to Namibia. And I entered this modeling course and won the, the whole course, the overall course. And this particular lady who found me had a modeling agency in South Africa and she took me under her wing and I became like one of her children. Um, And every school holiday from the age of 13, I used to go to South Africa, I used to do fashion shows. She got me in the modeling industry. And then by the age of 14, I ended up in Spain um, having a contract there in Madrid for three months. So I left school for a few months of the year and then I went back and finished school, which was great. But that's really how I came into the modeling industry. And I imagine there's not many uh, models from Namibia that are six foot two inches tall, correct? Not six foot, <laughs> but um, as as you know, Lahani uh, is is married to uh, Maroon Five, yes, uh, that's right, lead singer. So we do have a history of 
you know, some some potential really um, interesting celebrities. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Namibia. So tell us about the, the country that you're from and I guess what pageants really meant uh, in your home country as, as you were growing up. Well, you know, um, Namibia was taken in as a republic or an annex of South Africa. It was way back in, you know, the First World War. It was a German colony. And then they lost the war to Britain. So Britain took over and then kind of gave it to South Africa to look after. So we were always like this country that was just being looked after by South Africa. So we didn't really have much access to the world in terms of um, whether it was media or anything like that. I only got television when I was 10 years old in Namibia. That must have been in, what, 1987 or something like that, Mm -hmm. 1985. so the access to the rest of the world wasn't really there. Um, but really what, what stood out for me about growing up in Namibia was, you know, the, the fact that we, we obviously were an African country, but we also lived under the terrible regime of apartheid. Um, however, Namibia was quite separated from South Africa at the time in the sense that we were more progressive. So I went to a primary school or middle school where we had the you know mix of um, all the different races. So I'm fortunate enough to to be exposed to the you know away from the apartheid regime. Um, and then when I started modeling internationally, I started realizing international. Um, you know, perception of South Africa and the fact that South Africa was acting under sanctions. So the year that I was um, a model in the 80s, South Africa was not allowed to enter pageants, nor was Namibia. By the time Namibia became independent from South Africa in 1990, I came back from my modeling uh, career in Europe. I was modeling in Paris and Madrid and um, Italy. And so I had a wonderful year and a half of modeling internationally, but I wanted to come home and I wanted to, my dad's a chiropractor. So I was looking at becoming a massage therapist um, and study Swedish massage or Japanese massage. So I came back home for a little stint um, to come visit my parents. And it was at that time in 1991 that they had the local pageant. It would have only been two years that we would have had an international representative from Namibia. And because we were independent, we could we could represent internationally at Miss World and Miss Universe. I had no idea what pageants were about. So <laughs> I came back from the modeling industry. I don't know if you remember, but in the times of the 80s and 90s, modeling, it was frowned upon to be a beauty queen. Um, If you were a top model, it was the era of the supermodels. You know, you had the Cindy Crawfords, and so I would rub shoulders with them occasionally on runways, but it was frowned upon to be a beauty queen. So when I got back home for a visit, um, I was actually training for a triathlon with a whole bunch of school guy friends of mine that I'd, you know, seen and that were kind of working at the time. And they said to me, hey, you know, there's this great opportunity. You can enter Miss Namibia, win a car and a computer course. You're 18 years old. It's like set you up. This is amazing. And I was like, hey, okay. So it was a dare. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do this. And there I was, entered the pageant, (laughs) won Miss Namibia, had no idea what to expect. I'd never, (laughs) ever watched a pageant in my life before and so the organizer of the pageant said to me uh, well you're going to have to look at these pageants because you're going to have to represent at Miss World and Miss Universe and I was like what do you mean yeah he said you are our national representative so here you go Um, and that's really how it all began so I used my modeling techniques when I went to the pageants 
and my you know exposure to traveling the world to be able to cope with the pageant um, you know experience, but I had no real idea what pageants were about. So coming from Namibia and just now being able to compete in a pageant for it sounds like the very first time that, that the country was allowed to be able to do that. Was it a really big deal to the country that you won Miss Universe or was it something that, you know, pageants were, really weren't looked upon by a lot of the country? Well, it was a big deal when I did win. Um, I don't think that they really expected anything from me when I entered. Um, when I went to Miss World, I came forth and um, it was a whole different experience. I mean, I, I did not enjoy the experience. Um, there was, you know, a whole situation with the Miss World organizers that, was not great. Um, it was the first time Miss South Africa was actually competing for, for the first time in 20 years or something like that. So we became good friends. So after that experience, I didn't actually want to go to the Miss Universe pageant. Um, and my director said to me, look, you've got a responsibility. So I went to Bangkok and did, I just thought, I'm just going to have a good time, make a lot of friends. I'm from a tiny country in Africa. Nobody can even pronounce. Um, and and it's, it's, it's two years independent. So nobody even knew where it was. They thought it was, you know, in, in somewhere in South America. And so I just had a good time. Um, but when I won, um, I mean, my parents, uh, my father being a chiropractor, he had access to the community. Um, we had people delivering, you know, poor people coming to my parents' home, delivering sheep and goats and pigs and firewood and anything that they could just to show um, a celebratory, um, you know, that, oh. to say, wow, Michelle did something great for the country. Oh, cool. But at that time, we didn't even have live television. So nobody knew that I'd won. Um, we, so we, we didn't have the pageant that was, you know, live in Namibia. So they, they then, the, the TV station, the local TV station, then bought the rights and then showcased um, the pageant after that. So it was just really um, just out of the blue, I think, for everybody. And they didn't really understand what it meant for the country until um, the same year, uh, Frank Fredericks won a silver medal at the Olympic Games that I was able to be at. So after two years of independence, Namibia was literally just put on the world map through Frank Fredericks winning the silver medal at the Olympics and, you know, myself having this international title. So it was, it was just amazing for Namibia. Um, and I was able to secure the, uh, the president, the founding president of Namibia, Dr. Sandy Yorma, to be the patron of the foundation, the Michelle McLean Children Trust that I was then able to set up. I mean, how cool to be able to, you know, go to Miss Universe as a small country that's just now able to compete in pageants. I guess I'm interested to know because, if you know, if I talk to pageant contestants all across the United States right now, you know, they grow up with that dream of, oh, I want to be Miss USA. I want to be Miss Universe. You didn't grow up with that dream. So when you, you know, just competed practically for the first time, had been doing some modeling and then go on against the entire world in a pageant and win – what was going through your head at that time of what that meant and, and what you were going to do with it? I think it firstly was a shock that I even got into the top 10 because I was a total dark horse. <laughs> I mean, there was I was never even mentioned throughout the pageant process. I was the nice girl. I was the girl in the background. And I think because of my modeling background, well, I know that to be a fact. When I got onto that stage, I thought, all the scores are equal now. I've got nothing to lose. And it was kind of that moment of, um, so I'm taking this to the next level. And I had kind of thought through the process, having been exposed to the Miss World contest before, 
that what would I do had I won? So I had had some sort of um, meditative process over this. And when the moment arrived and I won, and sadly my parents couldn't be there at the pageant because they couldn't afford to be there, but my directors were there. They came to me afterwards and they said, do you know what this means for your country? We're only two years independent. And when I got that kind of response, I realized the huge responsibility that I had and the huge opportunity that I had to do so much for the people in my country because this was a platform I, I didn't only, um, wasn't only able to use for myself, but I was able to use to promote one of the most beautiful locations and countries in the world. So it just, it opened up the idea for me that the world was my oyster, but I needed to really uh, be cognizant of the responsibility that I had as an ambassador. And, you know, it didn't come without its sort of negative sides in terms of, and, and I want to be very open and honest about this, nothing racist about it, but I was a white representative from a black African country. Mm-hmm. And it was not an easy thing to deal with the media, um, especially my first <laughs> press conference was um, after I won in Bangkok was in New York. And they were wolves. I mean, they were just hounding me about this. You've, you know, grew up in an apartheid system and now you're representing. And so I was all of 19 thinking, how am I going to cope with this political uh, mayhem that I have to, you know, navigate? But I did through lots of support from my government, from my people, um, and, and just really growing up in the process and realizing I can only do what I could possibly do with the knowledge that I had and also be very true um, and integrous to the process. I was a white representative from a black African country. I couldn't change that, um, but I did the best that I could. And I think through my foundation, I proved not only to my government and my people, but to the world that I kept my commitment. Well, I love the fact on how you approached it was, I think most girls win Miss Universe and they think about all the supermodeling opportunities and you know the, the glitz and the glam of it. And your first thought was, you know, how can I help people with what I've been given, um, you know, establishing that foundation? I guess where does that come from for you? Because you established a, a primary school. I think it educates over 900 children a year. Uh, you, seem to have a, you, you seem to have a real heart for children because you talked about it in your answer on stage at Miss Universe. Where does that come from? I grew up with parents that um, belong to, um, I don't know if it's very big in America, but um, it's the roundtable group. And as I was saying, you know, with the underprivileged people in our country that weren't offered the education that white people were, we um, were, I was grown up in an environment where we always helped out those communities, whether building them homes or taking them to the ocean that they'd never seen. Or So I'd grown up in a very philanthropic um, family. And so my, my whole approach was, and I don't believe this to be everybody's past who decides to win a pageant. I don't think it's fair to say that every title holder in the world should be, um, you know, have, have a passion or desire to help her community, although that would be nice. If her desire is to become an Oscar-winning actress, well, you know, she can utilize her platform for whatever passion she has. But for me, it was intrinsic. Um, I realized I had a huge, huge opportunity with a country that was very unknown, I could become this world ambassador and certainly uplift the people that had had um, just decades of not being in a position where they were properly educated and given the opportunities that other people were given. So 
so it, it was just self-evident to me. It just seemed like, you know, and, and obviously coming from a family, my dad's a chiropractor. So helping people, you know, his whole life, it was just part of my, my process, I guess. Um, and I have to say, you know, also having had the opportunity of meeting Mandela during my year, I actually met him at the Olympic Games mm-hmm. when Frank Fredericks won. That really spared me on as well because, you know, he took me under his wing and he called me my sister of Africa and I'm so proud of you that you won this title. He, he wasn't inaugurated as president of South Africa at that point. It was in 1992. He was only inaugurated in 1994. And it was just what an inspiration to meet him. And he said, I've also started my foundation, you know, the Nelson Mandela Children's Foundation. And together we are going to do great things in Africa. And it was people like that, that I met along the way that just, you know, this, this process of having a foundation in Namibia. Well, I know you do a lot of philanthropic work down there in South Africa. Um, I guess at what point did you decide, I want to move to America because you and your family now live in Florida? That's correct. Well, um, I had a few stints of living in America. Actually, the first four years of my life, I lived in Davenport, Iowa, of all places. (laughs) I would have never, ever thought that. (laughs) My dad got a rugby scholarship, and that's where he studied chiropractic at Palmer College, the founding college. So that's the first four years of my life. Um, Then we went back to Namibia. Then when I won Miss Universe, I lived in Los Angeles for three years. Um, and then having gone back to South Africa, started my TV career and various other businesses, um, I got divorced and met um, my present husband, Gary Bailey, who's a former Manchester United goalkeeper. And we he'd also had a very long career after playing in England. He spent his um, the next sort of 25, 30 years doing TV work in South Africa. And we met at a time when we were just... Both, um, both of our kids were adult children. They were about to study overseas. And many people in Southern Africa will you know, relate to this experience where the kids go and they study, whether it's in England, Australia, or America, and they hardly ever have access to their kids again. So our idea was to move with the children, um, well, adult children, to America where they all could study. And we would start new careers here, um, which seemed very simplistic at the time and lovely, <laughs> but it definitely had its challenges. My husband in his 50s, me in my 40s, to start our careers all over again, um, the competitive environment, as you well know, in America. Oh, yeah. Even with our titles, um, you know, it's it's been challenging, but absolutely wonderful and well worth it. Well, I know you two do a lot together professionally. I believe you give some keynote speeches. Talk about how you two have kind of developed your business. Yes. Well, we, um, having had the background of television, both of us for um, 25 years, he did sports commentary. I've done lifestyle TV shows, you know, from fixing homes right through to e-commerce to travel documentaries. Um, When we got to the States, we thought, um, you know, we'd both been motivational speakers over the years. But Gary um, and I thought there's a very unique opportunity for both of us to speak together. So, we utilized um, the, the talk that we had, uh, Success Under Pressure, where we, Gary over the years has developed quite um, a lot of research on the stress hormones and, and how one can utilize the hormones within the body through certain techniques to be able to lower your adrenaline and cortisol so it re- reduces your stress. It's nothing new. There's no new science. It's just that it's become more and more prominent that, you know, hormones help you deal with stress and pressure. So we thought this is novel. You know, Gary and I will go out in the marketplace and we're a husband and wife team and we've practiced these techniques. We know it works for us. But boy, were we 
hugely surprised at the competitive nature of the speaking industry. I mean, it's just like, you know this to be true, Tim. Everybody is a speaker. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh <laughs> my a, gosh. You know, everybody. Everybody. And then we realized we were hitting a kind of a, a, a wall where being two speakers on stage together, we actually were a little bit, you know, too much for people to take in. Um, too much celebrity. Um, husband and wife aspect. So after working uh, together for about two years, we decided um, in you know in the last few months to for me to separate and to rather focus on um, you know being able to go into women's leadership groups and to training young young women in the and young men in the pageant industry to cope with stress and pressure in a niche that I really under understand. Um, so yeah, now we've, um, Gary's doing a lot of TV, TV commentary and I've moved into you know, doing a lot more of the motivational stuff. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career now, yeah, you know, and in, in studying you and learning about you, you and I have a lot of professional pursuits in common. We're TV hosts. We've done emceeing, uh, for events and pageants. And I know you do a lot of in, in that in particular, master of ceremonies for fortune 500 companies. Um, just a couple for those of you listening, uh, Puma, Levi Strauss, Volvo, Ford Motor Company, YouTube, MTV. I mean, that list keeps going on and on. How did you get into that side of the career? Because, you know, emceeing, you know, from my standpoint, I mean, it's it's something that you just don't start out doing. It's something that you kind of fall into through other pursuits. Yeah, I think it was a, um, a craft that I honed and developed when I got the opportunity to be a TV presenter in South Africa. In South Africa, Gary and I, with our titles, him a former Manchester United player and myself uh, a former Miss Universe, we were big fish in a small pond. So having had the television um, opportunity as a platform, we were asked to MC many different functions. And and that's when I fell into doing more MC work and, and really is, you know, something crafted over the years um, and really enjoy, which I'd love to do here in the United States. And I'd love to do more of it, especially in the pageant industry. I think we could arrange it's, that. <laughs> well, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. It's, it's a really, it's, it's really fun. Um, um, some people find public speaking, you know, to be very uh, daunting for me. It's, you know, I, I love in interacting with people and, and the different kinds of, um, it's, it's always a different job, right? So you've always got a different client. There's always a different atmosphere and a different audience, which is fun. It's, it's great. It's exhilarating. So one particular gig that I read about, uh, it had to be cool to do, uh, was you know, being a keynote speaker and MC at uh, what's called the Opera at the Pyramids in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, talk about that unique event. Wow, it was truly um, a, a fantastic opportunity. I had been working in Egypt on and off being a TV presenter because one of our stations in South Africa uh, used to be uh, broadcast in Egypt. That was one of the networks we had. So I would make a few trips and do a few um, publicist um, appearances. Then I got married to my first husband and I was offered this wonderful honeymoon traveling throughout uh, Egypt, you know, from Luxor to Cairo to Abu Simbel. And then they said, oh, and by the way, you know, you can repay us just a little bit by being a host at the laser opera event that we're having. And it was just, I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. I'm on my honeymoon. <laughs> you know, this is, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, I'm sitting in a place that thousands and thousands of years ago, some pharaoh was sitting there, you know, having his own little um a ceremony of some sort, and here I am. <laughs> so it was it was a mind warp, um, and and I just had many 
situations and opportunities like that in my life purely because I had the platform of being in pageants, having the title of Miss Namibia, then Miss Universe. Had I not had that opportunity and those titles, then, you know, all these other experiences, I couldn't I couldn't say they would have happened. So I'm just very grateful for that. Well, I got to talk about one more because I know a ton of women are going to be jealous that you got to do this. The Louis Vuitton Regatta in Valencia, Spain. What a stellar gig to be able to host. Talk about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I was friends with people that did uh, a lot of sailing in South Africa, and they were the hosts um, or organizers for the the International Louis Vuitton Regatta in Europe, which happens every year. And Oracle is one of the American teams that, you know, always wins. Larry always wins. And he won that year. I was MC for two years. Um, very unique event because I was pretty much the only woman after weeks that these guys had been on the ocean. <laughs> so I would be in a room full of um, thousands of sailors. You were a sight for sore eyes, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, it was it was just interesting, put it that way. So I'm, I'm glad they had a few other female organizers there to, to help us through. But it was fun. Um, I got to be on the Louis Vuitton yacht actually right close up um, when the race was happening. Um, I not only got to do that, but I got to have champagne with, you know, the, the owner of Louis Vuitton. And I still have handbags and handbags in my closet, you know, that were given to me as gifts. Um, that, you know, just that experience was lovely to be up close and personal. Um, um, and, and I guess that is, you know, it sounds so glamorous and it is so glamorous and, and, and all these opportunities have led to other opportunities. So meeting the Louis Vuitton um, owners led to many other opportunities as well around the world. Well, and, and kind of going back to what we were talking about with your, your current husband, you do do motivational speaking as well as emceeing. And I, I know that one of your talks is about really your experience as a former Miss Universe. So can you kind of tell everybody listening, what is your message when you go out and speak to women right now? Well, you know, really the message is to title holders and to, you know, aspiring title holders that really it is important to maximize and to utilize the opportunities that you have in the pageant industry or the beauty industry, whether you're a model or a title holder, because this is a a unique platform. And not only to see it for what it is during your year, and your responsibilities during your year or your, you know, philanthropy work you can do, but to really utilize this um, to craft your future career um, because there's so there's so many opportunities out there, whether it's personal branding, whether it's, um, you know, utilizing your contacts as I did through the Louis Vuitton or whatever person I met in the world, whether it was Mandela um, and I could name hundreds of others, the reason why I got all the work that I got and still in the pageant industry today. Um, so, so really the message that I give, I do two key keynote talks and one is about the history of pageants because it's always been very interesting to me. And, and I wanted to chat to you about this, Tim. Maybe sure. we could do like a you know BBC style or a CNN style documentary. I'd love to travel the world and you know get to know more about the history of beauty in different cultures because it has always been there there's always been the celebration of beauty and pageantry and that's why for me it's a little bit you know i'm looking at this whole me too moment i'm going why is there a crossover from a personal campaign that somebody might have a personal experience about you know um being demeaned as a beautiful woman or whatever it might be but to go back to the fact that 
pageants have always existed in history. And that's one of the talks that I give. I like to give the history of different pageants around the world. And specifically, if I'm, say, for instance, in China, I will do sort of background on the, the history of beauty and, and, and what it's meant to a culture and then bring in the, the perspective of what beauty means to the modern world right now and, um, and, and give a, an, over, an overview of how positive it is that women can be in the beauty industry, how many jobs can be created, how many opportunities women have within the industry. I mean, it's a, gosh, it's a $445 billion industry and it's growing at 7% a year. You know, we in the most exciting industry in the world. So that's one of my talks. Um, and then the other talk that I give is mostly about self-esteem um, and, and looking at the aspects of the beauty industry, which is very real, is that for many people in the modern world, beauty has stigmatized um, women to be a certain height, a certain weight, a certain, you know, um, in certain cultures, you have to have, you know, bigger breasts or smaller waist or whatever it might be. But to look at it from the perspective of we have to, um, we have to look at it um, in, in a modern sense and, and reassess how we approach it as women um, in a positive way. Because there are so many positives to it. Well, I, I'm just I'm stunned that you said that because I literally had been thinking about a documentary really talking about the evolution of pageants over the years because, you know, modern day pageants are a lot different than they used to be. And it's so interesting that you've said that. So I'll tell you what, I can put together the production company and, and kind of the production, help me find the funding. And I am 100% on board to go travel the world and do that with you. I think it would be a lot of fun to, to put it on something like Netflix for people to see. Absolutely. That would be one of my greatest any sort of bucket list things to do. <laughs> I say, I say we figure it out. Fantastic. I think we could. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of people in the beauty industry who would fund it. Okay. Well, let's, uh, well, we'll talk after the podcast and see what maybe we can come up with. Let's talk a little Fantastic. bit about your, ph your philanthropy uh, work because uh, in 1992, of course, the year that you won Miss Universe, you established uh, what you talked about earlier, the Michelle McLean Children Trust. Now, you've run hundreds of projects over 26 years. Um, but what I found really interesting is you've also done 10 projects for celebrities uh, like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Talk about what those projects have accomplished and how you were able to partner with these celebrities. Well, it was um, quite by chance because they came to Namibia to get away from the rest of the world to have their baby, Shiloh. Um, and being so close to my government over the many years, I've worked with the Ministry of Tourism, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education. And the Ministry of Tourism actually came to me and said, we are um, looking after safeguarding Angelina and Brad to have a baby in Namibia. They would like to give uh, the funding that they make from the PR after having the baby, because the media would paid huge money, apparently oh, yeah. more money than any other celebrity in the world. And they want to give some of this funding back to the communities in Namibia, but they needed to find a partner to do it. So I was obviously just over the moon about this. I, you know, jumped at the opportunity and together we developed, um, I, I needed to know from them what their, um, what their wish list was, what was it that they wanted to identify. And Angelina was very um, uh, specific about helping with clinics in very rural areas. So that was one of our 10 projects where we went in and we assisted the Ministry of Health in terms of upgrading certain rural clinics. So 
some some of these clinics literally were like under trees. Then one of the other projects was my, one of my favorite projects that the president, uh, the founding president, Dr. Sammy Yorma, got involved with, is there were so many children that missed out on the opportunity to go to school because they lived so far and remotely from the schools in farm areas and rural areas. So. You know, it would take them if it's I don't know what the same distance would be, but like 10 kilometers a day to walk to school and back. It would take up half a day or more than half a day to actually get to school and back when their families found it more important that they would come and be herders of the goats and the sheep. So they would keep the kids back, you know, at least three three days of the week of school to do their chores and not get to school. So what we did was we got rough terrain bicycles that we donated to some of the schools up north in Namibia, the most rural area, to give to the children that lived the furthest away from the school. And that way they could get to school faster and could get there and back and do their chores. And this was a huge success. So we gave hundreds of bicycles to schools up north. And that was one of the projects Angelina and Brad um, donated to. Um, And they also huge on conservation in Namibia. They still work very closely with the Cheetah um, Foundation in, in Namibia that, um, you know, I'm related to in terms of a lot of my, my work with conservation as well. So they're still there. Um, in fact, Brad did the um, architecture for one of the lodges in southern uh, Namibia in the Sausage Play area. So they're still very connected. Such a small world. I actually used to work with Brad's brother, Doug. Oh, really? Yeah. He lived in Springfield, Missouri, where I was a news anchor at the time. So we, we uh, did a little entrepreneurial project t- together for a couple of years. But just nice to hear that uh, you know, there's such a small world where we've all worked with kind of the same families. Um, now, in addition to that, you, uh, I believe you have what, what's called a, uh, a school of excellence. Um, I guess you provide scholarships and entrepreneurial and financial skills to students um, how was that different from, I guess, the Children's Trust and, and what you were hoping to accomplish with it? Well, it's, it's under the umbrella of the Michelle McCain Children's Trust. So over the years, I've had um, various different projects, mostly education orientated. Um, and that was one of the, um, besides having the school, the actual school that I built for the Ministry of Education in Namibia for a thousand children, which is built in 2000 and it still is running today. I still go back and visit um, and help them with funding for the school. The School of Excellence was really established as um, one would say here in America, we call it bursaries in Southern Africa, Mm -hmm. but you have like uh, scholarships and we would identify children that would, you know, we would not be usually found in very rural areas to be because they don't have access to great um, schooling or, or great opportunities. We, f- we found them and gave them scholarships, whether it is in the medical field. Um, one of the big things that the president of my country has always pushed is veterinary um, skills because we have a large community, obviously in the um, commercial environment in farming. So we would give out many scholarships like that. But the Children's Trust also branched out into working with the late Professor Chris Barnard, the first heart surgeon in the world. And we had, uh, because there's a huge um, uh, situation of heart defects in Namibia due to a genetic background, we saw about 36 children over the years have heart operations that led literally to the opportunity to live a full and healthy life. So we've done, and, and besides we have, you know, hundreds of other projects. One of them is always the winter months. We give blankets, food, 
and close to rural areas. I've worked with the ministries um, throughout Namibia to make sure that we, you know, cater for most communities. And then you're also an ambassador uh, for UNICEF, I believe, for the uh, SOS Children's Villages in Southern Africa, which you worked on with uh, Archbishop uh, Emeritus Desmond Tutu. Um, talk about Correct. talk about. I mean, he's he's legendary. Talk a little bit about working with him. Well, um, you know, besides having the the great honor of meeting Mandela, having contact with Mandela, and him being a huge inspiration for my foundation. At the time, um, I was living in South Africa, working there um, in television, because we didn't have really a television, um, we didn't have television opportunities in Namibia. So I'd fly back and forth, do my projects in Namibia. I mean, it's only a two-hour flight, like from here to New York, um, from Miami to New York. So when I lived in South Africa, I then got involved with the SOS Children's Villages, met um, the, the wonderful Bishop Tutu, and he um, he was obviously the founder of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that oversaw all the trials after the apartheid regime was uh, abolished. And just an amazing man, the same kind of temperament and kindness and compassion as Mandela always had, where he was all for... The children are our future. We need to look after them and make sure that their first rights are met, being sheltered, fed, loved, and cared for. And so the SOS Children's Villages was all about children that were either orphaned or um, abandoned, and they would have house mothers. And so I saw um, one or two SOS Children's Villages with him being built in South Africa and then one in Swaziland as well, which is which is one of those um, countries within South Africa, but it's it's separate, it's independent. But so I, I got an opportunity to work with the most amazing, inspirational people. They really taught me the, the, the true word, the true meaning of compassion without any of those fears and um, the hatred brought through, you know, that a lot of people could feel in situations where they, they've, been, you know, they've been not given the opportunities that other people have. So, wow, just, so, <laughs> just mind blowing. Yeah, my gosh, you've done so much. So with the Children's Trust, um, I guess, what's your goal with it now from this point out? I mean, would you like to see, um, you know, maybe more women here in the pageant industry in America get involved in doing philanthropy work like that outside of, you know, what they do with pageants? Yes. I, as I said before, I, I really think it needs to be something that's intrinsic in a woman. Not everybody is there to be a philanthropist and start a foundation like I did. The Michelle McLean Children Trust, because I have decided to move to the States, I shut down my main office. It's working very remotely now, um, but I still have project managers um, and access to various projects. What I do now is I use American NGOs to fund money into Namibia, and then I identify various projects. So it's done very, this is the wonderful thing about a global community, right? And, and, and in the day and age that we live in with technology, we can really remotely, um, you know, be able to do these, these projects and work. So I no longer have an, um, an office with a staff. Um, it's unfortunate because I used to love being able to do that and, and go and see everybody. Um, but it, this is easier for me to work so far away. Um, and then still to be able to work with my government and the different ministries. I've still got, a, I've got a, um, a ward for, um, it's called the Michelle McLean Children's Ward in one of the hospitals that we, we revamped. And really it's about, um, you know, when I speak to young title holders, to aspiring title holders, to women in the beauty industry, if they, 
and most of them do want to be inspirational and motivational speakers and use their titles in positive ways for philanthropy. Um, and if they do, give them an opportunity to, to really look at what they can do firstly for their community, um, but then also to be very true to their passion. Some women, because they've had a history in their family of somebody being deaf, would want to focus more on, you know, raising funds for those people that have um, hearing issues. Um, so, so not everybody's going to have the same drive and compassion and, and passion for a particular pro project. But um, if you are a title holder, if you are a person that is in the public eye, there is an opportunity there that cannot be missed if you want to do something great for your community or your state or your country. Um, because in a way, you do have a responsibility. You've got this great platform. But I'm not the kind of person to say that everyone, you know, philanthropy is for everyone. There's so many ways in which we can give back to our communities and be inspirational to people. Well, God bless you for doing all that you do, because I know there's not a lot of you out there. So thank you for just being such a giver. Oh, thanks. I don't do it on my own. And I've just had the most amazing support from, you know, just not only family, but great friends and and my government. I mean, my government's just been incredible with the work that I've, I've been doing. And I think, you know, Tim, as well, I think, I'm sure you experience this as you mature and as you get older in life, you, you start realizing um, through experience, there's so much that can be done, but you also have to be very um, honed in, in and, and sort of, you know, be very particular about what you do because you've got to maximize the work that you do. You can't be everywhere at once. And I, I made that mistake early on in my career and in my philanthropy where I was trying to be everywhere and everyone's, you know, savior. You have to really hone in and, and focus on what it is that you can do. That way you don't, you know, you don't lose the energy and you can actually, you know, maximize your potential. Yeah, and that's good advice for business and careers as well. So that, I, I really like that. Well, let's talk about pageants. Um, obviously, a huge part of your life right now um, and, and has been for a long time. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you've hosted a state pageant. You've judged both the Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants, and then you also won Miss Universe. So you literally have seen pageants from every single angle as a competitor, a host, and a judge. Which role did you consider your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've just come back from judging the Miss Iceland pageant um, as well as the Miss USA Virgin Island uh, pageant. And I have to tell you that being a judge is possibly my most, you know, my, my most difficult situation ever because you do know what it feels like to be in the, in the uh, title holder's shoes. And I feel a huge compassion and a huge, uh, you know, I relate to what they're going through. So um, I would say if I had to look at the process, I would rather be an MC okay. and um, a workshop and motivational speaker. Um, once again, you know, having um, entered pageants, I, I'd like to talk about the fact that I, I really do believe um, and being on the side now running the business of beauty and helping young title holders and people in the beauty industry really maximize their career opportunities. There are so many women out there that want to compete, that that love the competition. And that's that's life. I mean, that's been in, in our our history forever, whether it's sport, whether it's um, you know, academia, whether it's um, whether it's beauty pageants competition is part of our culture and I love the fact that women want to compete and get out there and and create new opportunities for themselves so I love 
watching the pageant process. Um, being a judge is great, but I would say I find it very difficult to choose one beautiful, intelligent woman over the next when I know that they all have wonderful potential. So, so actually being a coach um, is, is you know, one of my favorite aspects, giving the workshops and, and doing the motivational speaking. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that because you're doing a lot of other things in the pageant industry. We mentioned that you're working on a new book on how to help women cope with the demands of the beauty industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what that book's going to be? Yes, um, it has been in the process for a few years, and I'm, I'm glad I waited with it because, you know, a lot of people like to put their books out there as promotional material, not really wanting to, and that's, you know, part of the speaking industry as well. You don't necessarily make money off the books, but it's a nice sort of added value to what you what you add as a speaker. I wanted this book to be a sort of evolving process of my experiences, and I'm glad that I've waited to later on in my pageant process now being on the business side of helping young people utilize the the business industry because what I'm adding to my book is really adding the modern version and as you were saying pageants have evolved when they started out I mean we can we can even go back to when this universe started out it started out as a bikini competition or um, Miss USA started out as a, a sunscreen you know, competition, <laughs> you know, you know it's, it's like that, that was the promotional way of, uh, you know, how they, they, they marketed their product. And now it's evolved into something over the years where the woman becomes a true ambassador and um, somebody who has a responsibility um, or the opportunity to have the responsibility of being a spokeswoman for different brands, um, really elevating uh, women's uh, rights around the world and not only you know just for women to realize you know self-esteem and other aspects of of her environment but to recognize that she has a right to compete and be beautiful um and there's nothing wrong with it they different criteria for many different things if we if i could just go back to the sports industry um you can't be an olympic uh, you know, sports person unless you get certain times that is the competitive value to what you're doing in the sports industry. So having beauty pageants and expecting women to not fit a certain criteria um, is not realistic. So for me, you know, it's, it's about, yeah, it's, it's really about talking to women about that, that there are expectations in the beauty industry um, about what beauty means, but then there's also different, a different perspective on it from different parts of the world. Uh, and that's what interests me because what is beautiful in Africa and what I grew up around in different cultures is very far from the Western beauty that we have in the modern world here in America. So that always interests me. So as, you, as you've watched pageants evolve since you competed back, you know, in 1992, won the Miss Universe title. And now you've seen it to evolve to, you know, especially over these last couple of years, what it's now become. Um, matter of fact, I was just talking to Shana Mokler the other day about, you know, would she like to see any types of changes? And she mentioned she would love to see the pageants go back to more of what it was uh, in the 90s when you two both competed. Um, would you like to see anything change at this point in the game uh, with what pageants are doing right now? I've always loved the glamour side of it. And I've always found that, you know, calling it a pageant, it, it, it's true to its name. It's a celebration of beauty. It's a pageant. Um, you know, women who want to enter, they have a right to enter. If they want to feel glamorous and it's an opportunity for them to showcase the glamour, the beauty, the, um, I love, I love that extravaganza side of it. I think 
it's beautiful. But that's just my personal perception. But I also understand the power that one has when you have that opportunity to win a title like that. So, and the power being the the opportunity to shift and change lives and inspire people. Yes, I would like to see the glamour come back um, the way it was in the 90s because um, social media has had such a wonderful effect on pageants and, and a wonderful effect on, on, I suppose, most industries in the, in, in the beauty industry uh, or most industries worldwide. But um, sometimes with the openness of social media and the negativity that flows in, we don't get the same sort of the same appreciation for the glamour side. And and let's be absolutely honest. When I won Miss Universe and I traveled to 36 countries in my year and I was in two different continents a, a week, it was not as glamorous as it looks. But there is an element of glamour to it that I still love. You know, the crown, the dresses. the um, And if you're that type of woman that wants to enter a pageant and do that, I think it should be absolutely celebrated. I agree. I actually, I love, I love your perspective on that. Now, you uh, started a new company called Business of Beauty, as we mentioned, with your partner, Jane, who I've uh, communicated with back a, a few times. She used to be a director in the Miss Universe organization. Um, and that business, from what she tells me and from what you've explained to me, uh, I think we have a lot in common. Uh, uh, kind of, you know, the reason I created this podcast is, sounds like kind of the reason you guys created that business is that we're trying to help girls transition from pageant life into the real world. Talk about it. Absolutely. It's talking about, um, you know, when Jane and I worked together and she was uh, traveling with me on various occasions and, and we only met up again 10 years later, we realized that we've always had the same passion for, we love the industry and we also love the fact that if a, a woman comes along or whoever competes in a title, no matter, you know, what the competition is and we love not only the Miss Universe organization, because I'm a former Miss Universe, but the different pageant systems around the world offer so many different opportunities for people. We love the aspect that you can really harness all these opportunities, the branding uh, perspectives, the endorsement deals, and build a really lifelong career for yourself uh, through the pageant industry. And we want to make pageants cool again. We don't want people to be saying, you know, take away the glamour, take away the dresses. They can now come out in sports gear. You know, we're saying make pageants cool again. Amen. It's so wonderful to see glamour and women to feel beautiful. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. It should be celebrated. Women should be, um, you know, I think it's the antithesis of the Me Too moment where, you know, the Me Too moment is um, saying to women, well, you shouldn't, not, not the whole Me Too moment, obviously. There's certain people within that, you know, sort of realm that is uh, sort of promoting the fact that women shouldn't degrade themselves by going on stage in a bikini. Well, hell, if we want to, <laughs> and it's, it's part of our physique and our um, God-given genes and nature to be able to go out and compete in that way, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, so, yes, I'm talking about the business of beauty. Jane and I are wanting to make pageants cool again. We want to help young people, um, anyone in the pageant industry and beauty industry around the world who wants to aspire to a long-lasting career in it. Um, we are here to you know, assist you, coach you, 
um, through that process. And we, we find experts in different fields as well to do the workshops with us. I do one-on-one coaching. But um, yeah, and would, Tim, it would be great to have you along as well because I think the perspective from a man in the beauty industry is so powerful when a man says to women, hey, you know, it's great to be celebrated. Um, and you, you know, you've always done that from a wonderful, respectful perspective, celebrating beauty. That exactly. is, you know, wonderful. And I think, you know, also men should be appreciated for the fact that men are visual creatures. Women are there that, you know, if, if they happen to be appealing and, and, and attractive to men, that is part of our society. That is, you know, that's, I think it's part of human nature, you know, even society. Exactly. Just, it's like it's never really gone away from the beginning of time. It's like, you know, men and women have been attracted to each other since the beginning of time. So how are we going to get rid of that? Exactly. Well, we, we shouldn't. We should, we, should, we should just make sure it's a safe, beautiful, and celebratory environment. Well, I agree. I think you and Jane and I should get around a table and sit down and, you know, maybe figure out how we can help each other out because I think there's a lot we can do for a, a lot of young women out there. So let's definitely uh, talk about that in addition to our Netflix documentary idea. Heck, we got a whole business we're developing here over a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. That's amazing. Wonderful. So, yeah, so tell me uh, or tell everybody listening how they can uh, get involved with what you're doing. So you got your book coming up, but also the business of beauty if they want to hire you or if they want to learn from you or you know consulting or anything how can they get a hold of you or jane well they can go to our website which is businessofbeauty.com and you can go to our instagram which is business underscore of underscore beauty um, or michelle mclean official um, instagram and we've got all sorts of insights and different posts all the time and then um, you can see what our workshops are all about well Michelle thanks so much for coming on today really appreciate you sharing all your stories and uh, you know all your philanthropic work and just your career of work that you've you've come up with certainly an inspiration to a lot of girls out there so uh, thanks again and I certainly hope to have you on uh, back in the future and certainly let's talk about uh, how we're going to build out these businesses together that sounds wonderful Tim and and congratulations on the work you're doing as well for the pageant industry and making you know such a positive spin on a wonderful world of celebration of of beauty. You got it. Well, thanks so much, Michelle. That is today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, the podcast app, YouTube, or you could just go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And if you're still involved in the pageant world and you are wondering what Life After the Crown will look like for you and how to prepare for it, I encourage you to download my free Life After the Crown starter guide. It's a quick read that will give you a great blueprint on how to start planning now and not when it's all over. To get it, just go to timtialdo.com slash starter guide. And for weekly podcast updates, just follow me on Instagram at timtialdo. Until next time, remember the words of 1 Timothy 6.9. But if it's only money these leaders are after, they'll self-destruct in no time. Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. See you next week, everybody.